in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello and welcome to the Retro Movie Roundtable. I'm excited to have you guys back today. We're going to do Mission Impossible from 1996. John, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I think this is going to be one of our best shows ever. Like, really, this is going to be one of the best ones. Because today, we've got a very special guest. Designer of the logo and movie enthusiast, Meredith Robson. Meredith, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm, you know, I'm excited to to be on the podcast. Meredith, what kind of movies are you into? Well, I think that my favorite, I normally say, is science fiction. But I actually prefer something that's a little bit quirky, a little bit extreme, maybe. I'm a Star Wars fan, but I also like the sort of movies like 12 Monkeys or Blade Runner. Something that's a little bit on edge. But I also like sort of the Coen Brothers type of movies. You know, the the quirky comedy. Quirky oh, yeah, pl- they're great. Mm-hmm. Quirky plus action. Yeah. Um, so tell the viewers at home, you, you are a graphic designer, right? Yes, I'm a graphic designer. I also, um, you know, I work for an ad agency, so that's sort of in between graphic design and art direction. So it's an interesting job. Excellent, excellent. And let's see, what is the first movie you remember seeing? So I think the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was The Little Mermaid. But I don't, movie in general, I don't specifically remember what was the first movie I ever saw. But that was the first theater experience, I think. That's good. That's good. What movie do you think that you've seen more than any other movie? I think I've probably seen... Well, this is not really a movie, but the um, the videotape version of Cats more than anything else that I've ever watched. But hmm. probably as far as movie is concerned, I think Return of the Jedi I've probably seen the most times. That's a good choice. So what is the uh, have you seen any movies lately? What's the last movie you see or saw? So the last one I saw, I saw it this weekend and I hadn't seen it in a long time. It's called um, Shadow of a Vampire uh, with Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich. And it's about uh, the production of the movie Nosferatu. And Willem Dafoe plays uh, Max Max Schreck, who played Nosferatu. And uh, it's a a really interesting sort of historic, sort of uh, creepy historic movie, actually. If uh, it's hard to get anybody as creepy as Max Schreck, but if anybody did it, I'm sure Willem Dafoe. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, he was all out in the makeup and the nails and everything. 
That's great. So, as I previously mentioned before, today we're going to be discussing Mission Impossible, the original. This has spawned a whole franchise of movies, but we're going to go back to the beginning today. This came out in 1996 and made $80 million. Uh, sorry, it, it cost around $80 million, and it grossed $180 million um, and placed third in the box office that year, uh, placing behind Twister and ahead of another Tom Cruise movie, Jerry Maguire. It has an IMDb rating of 7.1, which is pretty strong, and the critics and Rotten Tomatoes give it a 64%, and the audience score a 71%, so pretty consistent. Um, that being said, John, uh, do you have any expectations or background uh, coming into this movie? When, when had you seen this movie first? Well, I first saw the movie in theaters when it came out, and, you know, it's the kind of movie that when you're 11 years old, it's really perfect if you're into action spy movies. Uh, so my expectations are pretty high. I, I loved Tom Cruise at the time. I had never watched the TV show, but I knew the song very iconically. Uh, so I think my expectations were to go in and see a fun gadget flick, almost James Bond-like, with some good action, and as a kid, I was definitely satisfied. Meredith, what were your thoughts coming in? What, what were your memories of this one? Well, I was so young when this came out. Um, I, I remember thinking that it was so sort of technologically driven and everything was so advanced and so cool. Um, so when I watched it again, I sort of I expected it to still be that way, and it was you know, a little bit 90s looking as far as the uh, computers and what uh, people thought of as, you know, high tech back then. So that was something that I was sort of thrown off by, by really how uh, how much things have changed since this first movie. So the self-destructing cassettes didn't yeah. seem high tech anymore? No. <laughs> what are cassettes? I remember thinking that was really cool when I was little, but no, not anymore. I loved cassettes. I did. Yeah, you I did just, too. You could just toss them in your backpack, and they still worked later. I mean, uh, you could record your own. I, they were they were fantastic. Uh, just, just never set the cassette videotapes on your dashboard in your car in the summertime. Oh, they yeah. like to melt. I remember struggling with CDs and scratches, and just having to, you know, be afraid of getting greasy fingers or scratches on them and it's just uh i i do like the uh, durability of the cassette tape but uh the quality was better with cds so yeah um as for me i i actually had somehow had diminishing uh memories of this i didn't remember a ton about this i definitely saw it back in 1996 and i liked it but i didn't love it and somehow it just didn't stick with me and somehow i'm going back to it now I like it. Uh, I, I, I actually, it, it exceeded my expectations. So um, going in, uh, I actually had more fun with this one. And I'm glad I went back to watch it. I'll be honest with you guys. I haven't really stuck with the series. I've only watched the first uh, three, and then I just kind of quit on it. And uh, now, after going back and watching this, I might be a little more inclined to go back and watch them all. So I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised or just pleasantly happy that you catch up with it i think they get stronger actually yeah but and i don't think that the movies the way they are now would be what they are without this first movie that i mean absolutely i mean 
uh, takes the success of this. And I mean, Tom Cruise has built a franchise much in the same way that uh, James Bond uh, or Connery mm-hmm. did for Bond. I mean, he's now on six movies in. So, yeah, we'll be right back after this mission briefing. Good morning, dedicated listener. The Retro Movie Roundtable needs your help gathering feedback, promoting the show, and growing their community of movie-loving fans such as yourself. This classified information is so important that we're only calling on our most skilled officers and agents to handle the case. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating and review. Then proceed to like Retro Movie Roundtable on Facebook. If at any point in your mission, you need to contact us at base, you may also make correspondence via email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Should you or any of your friends be caught, killed, or exposed, the Retro Movie Roundtable will disavow any knowledge of your actions. The cassette tape inside your listening device will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, listener. For anybody who hasn't seen the movie, we're going to start to spoil uh, at this point. So this movie is certainly over 10 years old, and we're, we feel like we're going to have to talk about it thoroughly to really appreciate it and to go through it. So this is your final warning. Spoilers lie ahead. Now we're going to talk about the uh, plot, and I'm just going to give you guys a quick rundown of how things uh, unfolded in the movie. Ethan Hunt is an IMF agent, which stands for Impossible Missions Force, and a master of disguise on a mission in Prague. His team must recover a CIA non-official cover list, or a knock list, from the American embassy. Things seem to go well until their hacker is unable to control the elevator and is then killed. Soon, Jim Phelps, his superior officer, is shot. Phelps' wife, Claire, dies in a car bomb, and another team member is stabbed, leaving Ethan as the lone survivor. After Ethan meets the IMF director, Eugene Kittridge, and a cool restaurant full of fish tanks. As they talk, Kittridge lets Ethan know that there's a mole in the IMF, and they believe that he's working with a shadowy figure named Max as part of Job 314. Hunt realizes that the restaurant is full of trained IMF agents, and they're there to monitor him. He presses the director and wants to know why. Ethan realizes that Kittridge suspects that he is actually the mole. Resourcefully, he uses an explosive uh, disguise as a stick of chewing gum to blow up the fish tank and escape. Hunt goes to an IMF safe house where he realizes Job 314 actually refers to Bible verse 314. Uh, Sorry, Job 314. And the code name of Max's contact is Job. Unexpectedly, Claire arrives at the uh, safe house. It turns out she escaped before the car bomb went off. Understanding the situation, she stays with Ethan to work with him since she is presumed dead and would be tied to him as a suspect if they knew she was alive. Hunt sets up a meeting with Max. He meets the real Max, who is a wealthy woman. Ethan charms her with his good looks and promises to deliver the real knock list for $10 million and for the uh, Job's identity. Max doubts him, but Hunt helps her escape a CIA raid, earning her trust. Ethan and Claire then recruit two former IMF agents, computer expert Luther Stickle and pilot Franz Krieger. The four of them plot to steal the real knock list from a highly secured computer inside the CIA Langley headquarters. They steal the knock list, then flee to London. Kittridge, pres- uh, sorry, Kittridge pressures uh, Hunt by falsely arresting his mother and uncle for drug trafficking. Hunt allows the CIA to trace him to London. Shockingly, Ethan then discovers Phelps is wounded and alive and was able to find him there in a rail station. 
Phelps explains that Kittredge is the mole. Hunt is not sure and then realizes that Phelps is actually the mole because the Bible in Prague uh, had a Gideon stamp from the Drake Hotel in Chicago. Ethan knows that this is the same hotel Phelps was staying at at a previous assignment. Hunt also suspects Krieger because of his unique knife, and he recognizes it from Prague. Max waits to retrieve the knock list from Ethan on a high-speed passenger train. Ethan gives it to Max and then takes the payment. He calls Claire and tells her to meet him in the baggage car in the rear. Trusty sidekick Stickle uses a jamming device to prevent Max from uploading the knock list data. Claire meets Phelps in the baggage car and asks if they could just take the money and not kill Ethan since they need someone to take the fall. She discovers that it is not Phelps she is talking to, but Master of Disguise, Ethan Hunt, who removes his mask. Uh, he knew it was Phelps. He knew Phelps was bad, but he wasn't sure about Claire until now, and she's bad too. The real Phelps arrives, takes the money, and holds them at gunpoint. Hunt is still a step ahead and records their whole conversation with video glasses that replay the footage and then relay that to Kittredge. Claire and James have blown their cover. Phelps tries to get away by escaping on a helicopter trailing the train piloted by Krieger. As Phelps nearly escapes, Hunt attaches a helicopter anchor to the train, pulling it into a tunnel. Hunt places a stick of that awesome explosive chewing gum on the, cell, on the helicopter windshield, killing Krieger and Phelps. Kittredge arrests Max, recovers the list, and then reinstates Hunt and Stickle as IMF agents. On Ethan's return flight, a flight attendant asks him in code if he's ready to take on a new mission, just as Phelps did in the beginning. So, did I forget anything? I think you got it all. I think you about nailed it. So what do we think about this story? You know, it's a little hard to follow at times, and I think I remember when I was young watching it, not really understanding the stakes of what the knock list is. And it's kind of, at that point for me, it was almost like a MacGuffin. It didn't really matter to me. I was more interested in the gadgets and action sequences. Um, but it, sometimes it can be a little all over the place and difficult to follow. But all in all, I, I think it was a fun mystery slash action flick in that regard. Meredith, what do you think about the screenplay or the, the plot of the story? Well, I think the plot overall is sort of like the the predecessor model to what we would see now in like a Jason Bourne movie or something on TV like Homeland. Um, and, a, the, you know, the writer, David Coep, sort of is good at that sort of thing. Um, I think it's a little bouncy around the but I see why, you know, in the history of movies, it's an important, it's an important screenplay. I don't think it's inconsistent the whole way through. Um, to add to your both points, which I totally agree with, I think it takes a couple of big jumps. And I almost wonder if there were some cut scenes or if things sped up too much through there. One of the big jumps is um, after uh, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan, discovers that the knock list is uh or the contact is job and sets up a meeting with max i feel like there's a big jump as he goes to meet max and then an even bigger jump just out of that to they're stealing the knock list themselves i was never real clear why they had to actually steal the real knock list to deliver it to max especially when they go to great lengths to make sure she can't actually use it once she gets it so that was a unexpected turn and then the other big jump was at the train station 
it's a big plot twist in the movie to see that Phelps is alive, but things speed up at that point, and it, it's, it takes a hard turn. And the tone of the movie shifts, but it's not just... I feel like there wasn't much transition there. So those are the, those are the ones that jump out of my mind. What what do you guys think in terms of you guys both alluded to being a little bouncy? Meredith, what do you think? Well, I, it is bouncy, but I think that it part of it could be intentional because you know it's it's a spy movie and things are never what you think they're going to be and they take a turn you know in a second. So you know if it's a little hard to keep up with, that's just sort of par for the course with a spy movie. I think. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that I was just kind of surprised by at the beginning that the team gets wiped out so quickly and so readily, uh, especially with some people at the time that were kind of bigger name actors. And uh, but uh, in doing research for the film, I found out that the original thought for the film was to open with the original TV show cast members all getting killed and that they didn't like that. So I can't help but wonder if maybe that kind of just came over to this hmm. portion, like th- this version of the plot. I kind of think that's kind of fun. Um, I, yeah. I, I'm surprised there wasn't actually any cameos, even if they weren't the real characters, um, but by the people in the TV show. So I could see how I, I, I might not, love the fact it's like hey you want to come back and get killed at the very beginning all of you like it's... yeah it would have been fun though for the movie i think for people who are fans of the tv series it would have been a lot of fun yeah i think martin landau in particularly wasn't yeah. a fan of the idea um so at this point john do you want to go through the cast a little bit for us sure well we have Tom Cruise to start with, as as they identify the point man of the group. He's kind of the boyish, charming everyman. Seems like he can kind of do it all. Uh, John Voigt uh, plays Jim Phelps, who is the team leader, kind of a dad figure, who gets made fun of for staying in high-end hotels a lot. And wear suspenders. And wear suspenders. <laughs> and... Uh, Emmanuel Bayer plays Claire Phelps, Jim's wife, and questionably gold digger, seemingly much younger than Jim, uh, handling transportation for the team. Kristen Scott Thomas plays Sarah Davies, the deep undercover operative for the team. Uh, In my opinion, one of the more functional members of the team. Emilio Estevez plays Jack Harmon, kind of a comic relief, but expert hacker for the team uncredited uh, uncredited exactly at that time big name and, uh, and we have sorry for mispronouncing your name in lithuanian but uh ingeborga depkunate as hannah williams who is a pretty face that makes a good surveillance person and so that is our main team so we also have henry zerny playing Eugene Kittredge, who is the director of IMF, running our show of trying to find the mole. Ving Rhames as our disavowed hacker and kind of cool guy. And Jean Renault plays aptly named Franz Krieger, who seems to be looking for a fight all the time, even though he's a pilot. Although when he's introduced, he seems kind of more as a requisitions officer. 
pretty good. I'm going to add uh, one more tip of the hat and, to Vanessa and, Redgrave. I say, and Max. Vanessa, you know, and the final one, I, I found it interesting that everyone until this point are all IMF people, which kind of is indicative someone's not going to be a good guy. But we have the gender ambiguously named Max, played by Vanessa Redgrave. Who is a lady? Yeah. So, uh, Meredith, any thoughts on on this group of cast uh, bef- before we move on? Uh, any any names that uh, we left off or anything? Um, I don't think there is anybody that we uh, that we left off. Um, I think that Emilio Estevez kind of, you know, really should have had a credit for this movie because of the of the characters of the original team who get killed at the beginning of the movie. He's probably the one that I like the best. So. It just somebody, seems so lonely. Like he just yeah. wants to. If one of our viewers understands the uncredited thing, we see this time and time again. Why do some actors just not get credit? I don't. I don't understand. So uh, write into us. Tell us why. I, I think maybe at this stage in his career, he made a transition to behind the camera, and you know he comes from a pretty strong acting family, so. Maybe it was just one of those, he's in there for fun, and... Speaking of his family, does he have tiger blood, too? I I mean, he he might. He he kept his real name, so maybe only the Sheens carry the the tiger blood. Winning. (laughs) So, uh, let's talk about director Brian De Palma. Um, Meredith, what do you think of De Palma's job here at Mission Impossible? Well, I thought he did a really great job, and the the thing that's interesting about it is if you watch the credit sequence from the TV series, the way that it's cut together is very graphic and very dramatic, and he seemed to carry that through to not just the opening credits of the movie, but there were little bits of that throughout the movie, and um, very sort of extreme graphic angles, match cuts, that kind of thing. So I thought that he did a great job in taking that part of the series and introducing it into the movie. Absolutely. John, any thoughts on De Palma's direction? Well, I've always liked him as a director. And one thing I I just find interesting about this, because you can't say this about many movies, the action sequences were developed first and then he had to help build a plot around those, but still make a feasible with some extreme action sequences, mind you, to make it all fit together. And I think I can't help but think maybe that's why the, the plot sometimes seems to jump uh, from place to place. Uh, but yes, I, I think he does the cuts very well. And I, I like that he used Prague at the beginning. Uh, I didn't know this before, but that was a city that was very rarely shot in Hollywood films. And I remember it actually introduced me to the city of Prague because I remember seeing it on screen when I was little. I thought it was Pregu, and I was like, "Is is that a knockoff spaghetti brand?" <laughs> and and I I like groundbreaking things like that because now it's a city involved in a lot of espionage movies it's so. a charming city it uh it didn't it get destroyed in world war ii it's it's an older city than a lot of it's uh, got an old look and i really liked that yeah yeah i mean Prague's definitely a charming place i haven't traveled there myself but i i would love to someday i'd like to go to a lot of places yeah <laughs> um absolutely 
so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I thought this storytelling, and we kind of touched on this one a little bit already, um, could have been a little more coherent. But uh, what you're talking about is not so uncommon. The Bond movies actually build build around the stunts or the locations. So they'll think about where they want to go and some of the things they want to do. And, uh, you know, Bond has a little more of a template. Like, there's certain things that they know that, that, that work for the series. And they know what they're going to do, and they know some things they're not going to do. So perhaps Bond has a bit of an advantage over Mission Impossible. And this is early Mission Impossible. So, like I said, if I were to keep watching the series, maybe I find that they hit their stride and know their comfort zone as well. So... Uh, I thought it was interesting. De Palma's career has got some pretty interesting movies in there. I mean, he did Scarface, uh, Wise Guys, The Untouchables is definitely one of the one of the movies I really enjoyed that he did. Um, I gotta say though, having seen some of his other movies, um, I was a little surprised to see this was him. I didn't pick up on the continuity, or having seen some of his other movies, I didn't I didn't look at this and say like, oh yeah, that's the guy who did The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually thought this one wasn't quite as up to par with some of those other ones that he had done in terms of from a direction standpoint alone. Uh, the movie's still very good, though. Um, well, and, and some of the research I've kind of gotten is I don't think he had like full power on this movie. I, I was surprised to see how much control Tom Cruise had over this movie. And, he was a co-producer, I think, on this yeah, movie. You're right. Yes. And so, honestly, a lot of the decisions were based on Tom Cruise. And so maybe that's kind of why it doesn't feel like some of his older movies. You know, you're talking about Scarface, The Untouchables. I love Carrie out. Carrie's probably my favorite one. Ca- Carrie, Carlito's Way. Uh, and, and it might have a different feel to it because this is definitely meant to be a box office may 22nd release it's uh, a summer film appealing for action over the top action and so maybe that's kind of why it seemed to veer off from his typical template you're right a lot of, there aren't a lot of other popcorn movies in his um catalog there so it was different for him so maybe he didn't know or he didn't have the experience for how to respond to a movie like this he does a pretty good job still i'm not like i want to make it very clear he he didn't do a bad job i just i was a little surprised to look back and see that much integrity and um that much history behind him uh i just didn't seem like somebody who would want to take on a project like this Yes. Well, I think maybe that somebody wanted him because he was a little more artistic than uh, somebody who would usually direct, you know, the big action movie of the summer. They wanted somebody who was a little bit different. I don't know who that person would be, but that sort of seems like what happened there. Well, as John mentioned, they thought different by going to Prague. So maybe you're right. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some if we as we look into this, uh, there's some opportunities there to see how he thought different. Um, so, uh, let, so we already talked about location a little bit. Uh, you know, we've got Prague, the Czech Republic, which is in the Czech Republic, uh, Langley, uh, in Virginia, which we don't, we just see long shots there and we see a, a set that's designed to look like a computer facility. Um, and then, uh, we've got, uh, London, uh, they don't really show the best of London. And then there's the Scotland uh, countryside, which is where they are in the train ride. Uh, what do we think about these locations? 
Well, I, I, we kind of touched on Prague, as you said. I, I really liked that one. And as you said, I'd seen London plenty of times with Bond at this point. So maybe it was wise for them to not really delve too much into it. Uh, but the locations, the location for the train action sequence, that's just... They wanted to do it in France originally, but it it, it took too long to try to work it out with them. And so I thought they picked a great countryside for it. Although a lot of the train sequence is filmed in studio on a blue screen, but they did have to actually go there to get some scenes of that train. And, you know, in the United States, we just don't have trains like that, especially when we were that age. So seeing trains go that fast, I was just mesmerized. It is a cool train. Um, Yes. Meredith, what were your takes on the locations that they chose? Well, I thought overall they they chose locations that were very different from each other. And no matter what it was, you know, there was a sense that it was somehow exotic to the viewer, like you hadn't been there before. You know, they even managed to make Langley look somewhat interesting, which I would imagine it's probably not. Um, but there was a stark contrast between every location. And I like that, that we ne- we didn't see the same thing throughout the movie. And I like that you touched on that because I think that kind of gives us what, you know, spies and covert agents have to do. You have to be ready to go from place to place very quickly Mm -hmm. and be ready to adjust from one country to another. Uh, Different accents, different uh, identities, passports. And so maybe it gave us a little taste of the difficulty of living that kind of life. Yeah. um, So... The uh, f- a couple of fun facts is I'm gonna I'm gonna use my architectural background here to let people know that the exterior uh, embassy that they're showing you is the exterior of the Liechtenstein Palace in Prague, and the interior of the embassy is another building. It's the Nardoni uh, Museum, which is a natural history museum, and um, the uh, I, I also really loved the River Walk that uh, is appears to be adjacent to it on the uh, exterior there. That river rock with the fog and stuff is really great. And the the bridge and the stairs that they have there, I, I did really enjoy how they gave you a sense of place in the beginning. They didn't do as good of a job in that in London. The train station was cool, and I like showing a new, si- new fresh side of London, but um, the movie picks up its pace, and obviously they're in an internal... Uh, they're in a duct system, basically, in Langley, so it's a closed quarters kind of situation. Um, but uh, another closed quarters situation of being on a train, that was great. So um, I did. I thought it rebounded well there as far as location goes at the end. Uh, I'm with John. That was, train, that was a great train scene. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Train slash helicopter scene. That's yeah. right. Um, so what do we think about the the um other aspects of atmosphere in here any any other comments anybody would want to say in terms of the things that made up the atmosphere of this movie well uh i think the atmosphere was done pretty well uh in regards some of what we kind of touched on that, that building you were talking about I, I i loved that foggy part of prague especially when she's shadowing Galitzin 
And, you know, it, it gives it kind of a an ominous, kind of scary uh, kind of part of it. But a lot of it, uh, and Meredith kind of touched on it earlier, is the, the, the gadgetry it sets up. Like, at the time when I saw it, I mean, this technology was, like, unbelievable. Uh, I mean, particularly the vault. I mean, I was like does a room like this actually exist and like the system of urgency and what's at stake uh is a lot and that's the only indication i had really that the knock list was that important that it required that many security measures um but and i also thought that they did a good job of splicing in some humor there and i think ironically it was the hackers that really provided most of that um i i thought it was well-timed uh, most good popcorn movies, they need points of comedy. And I thought that those were brought in at the right times. Meredith, what, uh, mm-hmm. one of the big things that sets the tone for this movie is the uh, soundtrack. What, what are your thoughts on the uh, choice of the soundtrack and score here? Well, you know, it's, it's very fast and sort of propelling you through everything. It's um, Danny Elfman, but it's not really in his signature sort of dreamlike style. Um, and, it, you know, it employs a lot of the, the urgency of the theme music for Mission Impossible. So I thought it was pretty well done. Um, it seems like the music plays into the lighting a lot. There's always, you know, a little bit of ominousness in the darker scenes and a little bit of quickness in every in everything that's brighter, like in the big um, the security room, you know, where Tom Cruise has to come down uh, from the ceiling to the floor. There's a lot of quickness in that music. So, yeah, I thought it was really well done, even though it's not his signature style. That's a good point. There's a, there's a lot of um, harsh interior lighting, particularly in this movie. Uh, things kind of have a blue pale. Uh, glow on them which isn't necessarily the most pleasant thing to look at and can wear on you over time but part of the fogginess that we see in Prague which I think is where the movie sets the mood best um, and the uh, dingy interior lighting you're right I think the Elfman now that you've mentioned that I think that is reinforced in the music as well that helps actually give you yeah. that mood uh, I yeah, was surprised to see Elfman's name. Kind of. it does I was surprised to see Elfman's name on this, to be honest with you. I, I did not identify this as an Elfman score right off the bat. Um, it's not a Tim Burton film with Elfman. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, it, but it's totally right for what the movie is. It is. It, it fits. It fits very well. So I got to talk about the soundtrack a little bit, too. Uh, we have Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr., who are two of the uh, lesser-known members. It's not Bono and the Edge, but it's Adam and Larry. Uh, f- that do the theme. And to me, when I think of the theme song of Mission Impossible, it's had several different renditions. This is the iconic uh, song. And it was, a, it was a pretty big success. It peaked at number 16 on the Billboard Top 200, uh, considering the movie doesn't have um, words. Uh, sorry, the song doesn't have words. Uh, that's, that's really unusual to have a pop tune uh, a hit like that. And um, so uh, the um, it hits in the top ten even and the t- top two hundred um, as well. So uh, the album sales were set at sixteen, sorry, and the uh, the song itself hit in top ten. So uh, really cool to show just how talented these guys from U two who sometimes are overlooked and they shouldn't be. 
the uh, traditionally named members of U2. It's uh, but I one thing I read about it, and I didn't know this. I, I like that they were nervous about taking the original theme and redoing it. It shows a level of respect for such a classic uh, tune. I I'd never watched the show, but I certainly knew the music, and I mean. Anytime I hear it, I, I feel like I should crouch down and get secretive. Like, it, it's just, it's really good at that. And I, I like the fact that they both made their own versions of the song. And that Polygram actually wanted both of them. They were, they asked him to pick the favorite and they liked them both and took them both. They recorded them in different cities. Uh, Mullen did it in Dublin and Clayton put it in New York City. Uh, while they weren't with you too, and it worked out great. Uh, another soundtrack point I got to point out is I love the cranberries at the end. Uh, yes, that, that, that was uh, that, that was a surprise, and then I thought like, oh, they went back and pulled that in there, and then I actually realized the movie was actually old enough to be in there. So I was like, oh, this is contemporary well, for the time. Yeah, that's perfect. Great. That's actually probably my favorite cranberry song, and uh, I think it fits the mood of that scene very well. Like. It does, and honestly, when you go back and look at this, this is this is something I, I find in the '90s a lot. Uh, you don't see this as much now. I think th maybe the album was used as a marketing device for the movie. The movie is a marketing device for the album. But there's this is actually I listened to the soundtrack, the full soundtrack on this one uh, online, and it is actually kind of a fun listen to. It's got Massive Attack on there. Uh, it's got um, uh, Danny Elfman. Has, it's got Bjork. Uh, it's got the cranberries, uh, in, and then obviously the classic Larry and Adam uh, song. Uh, it, it has some fun stuff to listen to on here. It, it is very 90s, but um, it was kind of a fun way to go back and listen to some of how technology was infused into music at the, at the time. And uh, it's a high-tech sounding soundtrack. A lot of progressive people who are bringing in technology into the music and kind of setting a cool uneasy feeling of what's going on there i think they needed a garbage song though that's my that's my take <laughs> um there was only and i don't know why i i even noticed this when i was younger there's only one little short clip that i thought the music was just a little too cheesy from like a cheesy superhero movie but it's just for a moment when Ethan jumps from the train onto the helicopter. It's only a few seconds, but the music does not seem to fit that little tiny sequence at all. Like, it really feels like some sort of Wait, 50s. You're, talking about, you're talking about the helicopter where he blows back onto the train? No, reverse, when he jumps from the train to the helicopter. Oh, that's fair, because I was, I was, I was going to say they were playing the theme song when he gets blown off the helicopter. See, I was like, no, see, that was perfect. No, they transition into the theme song after that, which is great. But right before that, there's this weird brass, like, yeah, something like I'd see out of like a ten-year-old cartoon show. Or like the movie um, with uh, Billy Zane, The Phantom. The Phantom, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it just really seemed. I was like, uh, that sounded weird. This like, isn't what I want right now. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't ask for this. <laughs> I did not want this. <laughs> so uh, I enjoyed... Uh, you know what? I was surprised. Uh, this movie starts off looking very stylish in Prague with the scenes there, but it also does with the wardrobe. I'm surprised. Uh, spy movies, and I can't help but use James Bond as the standard. This movie is not a stylish 
uh, as the Bond movies. I mean, Cruise definitely has, uh, right from the beginning, as they plan the mission, he's got this cool-looking leather jacket, and he's wearing all black. But, I mean, he kind of comes back to that a lot. I mean, he does look sharp in his tux. And uh, Kristen Scott Thomas has a very classy-looking black dress there as well. But, I mean, the movie doesn't exude a cool, chic, awesome wardrobe. Um, am I wrong? Yeah, it's very realistic. It's not stylized at all. It's, you know, just things that people actually did wear. Um, and it's not like... Um, MI5 sort of clothes. They're not sleek and put together. They're CIA clothes, which is a little more downscale. Maybe it's because us Americans just don't have as good of style. We, we I need, think that's what it is. We yeah. need the Europeans to tell us how to look good. Although I guess Tom Cruise is going to look good in whatever you put him in. So, Yeah, he, he's going to be fine. Although <laughs> I, I, I got to say, it's like John Voight's character, Jim Phelps, like, can you get a, at least a different colored trench coat? Because we can always tell who you are even when we can't see your face, <laughs> by that same trench coat the whole time. Uh, I got to say, I uh, I probably still dress like Emilio Estevez in this with his uh, casual uh, flannel shirt. So uh, I, I was like, I'd wear that. Oh, and I'll tell you, at the time, I loved his light glasses, and I carry a headlamp with me about 95% of the time. And... It, it, it's amazing that how much the technology has come since then. But I was like, wow, that's a brilliant way to use a light so I can have both my hands and not just one. Like Throughout the movie, I, I think the 90s uh, ladies in movies tend to be a, a very the, the very, very, very thin look was in. And uh, Emmanuel Bayard is like kind of got these stretched long, very slender, perhaps too slender proportions. And she's got a lot. And I, I, I noticed on the on the train that she's got like a. A scarf around her. She had a very long neck, very pronounced. The way that she wears her hairs up, and I, I made a note of like it looks like a giraffe wearing a scarf. <laughs> yeah, the the nineties, you know, movie stars were very skinny, and that was you know the ideal for some reason at that time. But yeah. it, it, it didn't age well for this movie. I I don't Although think I, so. Yeah, I I will say the outfits that. Tom Cruise and John Renault were wearing when they were breaking into the vault at the time looked pretty awesome and sophisticated. Oh, the black, you mean like all black? Yeah. Kind of tight, not quite like leathery, but just almost something an acrobat would wear. And, uh, I found that pretty interesting. So let's, Let's do look for this. Uh, Meredith, do you have any fun facts or bonus content? Any kind of fun things you want to throw away? We'll kind of go around in a circle and share. Well, um, I read online, and I don't know the level of truth to this or not, but I have read that the sleight of hand that Tom Cruise uses in the scene where he's, you know, getting the disc away or trying to convince the other guy that, you know, of who has the disc that that was actually something that he learned to do and not a special effect. So I would be interested to know if that's true. And if it is, how long it took him to master making that disc disappear and reappear so many times. Mm. He's, he's a master of disguise and he does magic too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> John, hit me. 
Well, I I got a couple of them, and I found this one interesting. And uh, being an action film, I, I found it interesting that only five gunshots occur through the entire film, and Tom Cruise fired none of them. But and, there were uh, two sticks of exploding gum, so there. Y- yes, that there that that makes up for it, I suppose. But I did find it interesting that. You know, what I consider typically action, especially in the early 90s there, you've got a lot of shoot 'em up type movies where uh, bullets are everywhere. And this one, although it is an espionage flick more, there's usually more shots fired. I'd been more used to James Bond, and he doesn't shy away from using his gun uh, very frequently. But this is this this flexes the gadgets, though. You know, I, I love... it, it really does. I love the gadgets in this movie, and some of them may seem antiquated, but I mean, to have uh, glasses that record things ahead of time, that's really cool. And I still, I love the stick of gum that you fold in half. I mean, So that, that bothers me, the stick of gum, because how would you, in manufacturing it, fuse the blue part to the red part without blowing yourself up? Well, it's, it's, it says it right there. It's, it's, you've got a red side and a green side. And, uh, yeah, but must, they're stuck together. There must be a neutral part. Like, yeah, but say there must be a little buffer in between them, as long as they don't touch each other. Uh, kind of like in D- Die Hard with a Vengeance, you got the binary compounds. As long as they're not in contact with each other, they're not going to react. So. Also, going back to it, Meredith, you said you weren't sure about uh, Tom Cruise's magic or not because you read it on the internet. If it's yeah. on the internet, it's true. <laughs> oh, well, that's not something I was aware of. Uh, 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 oh. The internet never lies. The internet is, is always truthful. Anything you read. I hope definitely. it's true because I would like to believe that that's not a special effect and that somebody actually could do that. But Somewhere you can hire Tom Cruise for your kid's birthday party for <laughs> millions of dollars and he'll he'll play the disappearing act. Yeah. And pull a disc, a floppy disc behind, uh, or actually, sorry, it's a mini disc. Uh, yeah. Out, out from behind a little girl's ear. Yeah, the mini disc was short lived, but it is in Mission Impossible. I, I, I had a mini disc player. I won't lie. I was, did you? I, I did saw not. It as, I had a Sony mini disc player. It was the first time I could actually make my own cuts for tracks and everything. It was fantastic. It didn't skip while I was skiing, unlike a <laughs> discman. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but one thing I, I found pretty interesting is. Because I even wondered this when I first saw it. It's like, so on the train scene, so obviously they're not filming most of that on a train, but clearly the wind they're having is pretty substantial. And so apparently it was Cruz's idea because he'd used one of those machines to simulate skydiving. And he, there was only one machine in Europe that did it at the time, and he got it. And Cruise wanted winds up to 140 miles an hour, so it would distort his face. And, I mean, because when you're on that train, I, I really believe they were on that train. Like, usually you'd be like, a train that fast, oh, the wind, there's no way you could stand it. But, I mean, he, he could, couldn't really stand up on it or anything. It was really intense winds. Like, it's, it's, you're right. That, is, that scene is convincing. I mean, uh, you think of... The, uh, how many movies have a train top fight? But uh, this one's a, this one's a different kind of train top scene. So yeah, and so often they're standing on the top of the train. I, yeah, the like nothing's happening. Like yeah. they have perfect balance. 
if 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 you if if there was ever an episode for old media to be talked about, it's this. We've talked about the cassette tape, the mini disc, and I've got to yeah. look for this moment of. This is the last motion picture from Major Studio to be released on Betamax video. Wow, wow. Betamax made it that late. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like the whole episode, all we're doing is talking about old forms of media, CDs <laughs> and cassettes. <laughs> but yes, apparently it made it this late. I'm surprised. I I really am surprised by that. I wonder. I wonder. I, I did. I did not look up on eBay what the going rate for a beta Betamax copy of Mission Impossible 1996 is. I, I, I bet that's a collector's item at this point. The last Betamax. Mm. It sounds There's like a movie. There's probably somebody out there who has all of the, you know, big important movies on every type of media that was available at the time. There's got to be somebody. If anybody out there has a Betamax version of Mission Impossible, write to us and let us know. I I, I would like to meet you. (laughs) We we can have a whole special episode about it. (laughs) Um, Meredith, do you have any, do do you have another look for this moment? Um, well, I, I don't know if it's really a look for this moment, but I was really upset in the beginning when, uh, Emilio Estevez got smashed in the uh, the elevator shaft. I don't know why that's important to me, but somehow it is. Because he's the coach of the Mighty Ducks, and that's not how you want to see him go out. No, it's uh, it's a little jarring, especially for a kid. It is. Um, well, one I, thing I I'd like to to, to kind of add in, and this is gonna really changed the rest of Cruz's career. The movie came in under budget primarily because they started with a stuntman, but Cruz just ended up doing all of his own stunts. And this has become a trademark of his career. Uh, because even in the second movie, uh, and that's a director's nightmare to have your star doing extremely dangerous things. Uh, I remember seeing an interview with John Woo. If you remember the second film, there's a scene where the villain is about to stab him in the eye, and they had some sort of tripod device. So there's an actual knife, you know, centimeters away from Tom Cruise's eye, and John Woo said he was about to have a heart attack the whole time. But Tom Cruise is very dedicated to that craft, and he actually put coins in his shoe when he was lowering into that vault because he kept hitting his head on the floor. Wait, you're saying he couldn't balance himself? So he, he couldn't he balance put... himself. So they he put coins in his shoe. Dar, he put gold doubloons in his <laughs> boots. <laughs> Smart place to hide it. That's actually one of the best scenes in the movie where he's just sort of moving his arms and adjusting his legs so that it doesn't uh, touch the floor at any point. And so... catches his one sweat drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm a huge James Bond fan, and I, I got into this movie because it kind of hits some of those notes for me. It's different, but uh, I found one interesting point of overlap. The climactic train sequence took six weeks to film, and they did do it on a stage, as John mentioned. But that stage that they did it on is the Pinewood Studios stage that they uh, in England that uh, they do shoot uh, many, many things of 007. Uh, so if you're any 007 fans would uh, be kind of excited. This is a moment of overlap for uh, Mission Impossible and uh, 007. Yeah, 
I think that's the highest quality of studio. I think that people try really hard to get time in that studio. It seems like something that you read about a lot uh, in articles about movies. Can we get a crossover between Mission Impossible and James Bond? Like, uh, people might say that's sacrilege, but I, I, I would love that. Yeah, I would like it too. James Bond uh, teaming up with, uh, you know, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, and Daniel Craig. Uh, at this point, it would have been Brosnan, but uh, Daniel mm-hmm. Craig and uh, Ethan Hunt, or uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise just never seems to age, really. Those guys are both shorter than you might think. Oh, Tom Cruise is he's quite short. Maybe it helps him do some of those acrobatic things. I think uh, probably. I think you want a small guy to uh, finagle his way up on top of, you know, getting on a helicopter from the bottom. I've got Tom Cruise's height. Guy, it would be more difficult. I've got Tom Cruise's height in here is five foot seven, so he's actually a little bit shorter than I am. Even that's that's amazing. Well, why aren't you jumping on trains and doing stuff, Russell? And looking really, really ridiculously good looking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some boyish charm. (laughs) Uh, The aliens didn't bless me like they blessed him. (laughs) So uh, I want to ask at this point, how did this movie affect you or how did you react to this movie? Uh, Meredith, why don't you take this one first? Um, I think that my reaction to this movie after watching it is always relief because he's, you know, the main character, Ethan, is is so either confused or in full adrenaline mode or trying to figure out how to change his plan. I always feel, you know, relieved at the end of the movie when, you know, he finally gets things straightened out. John, how did how did this one affect you? Well, uh, I mean, the technology stuff just made me want to explore the Internet more and more when I was younger. But I I kind of agree a little bit with with Meredith. It's uh, I just can't imagine having this whole team that is pretty important to you, uh, particularly, you know, Jim Phelps is kind of like a father figure to him. And they're all just gone. But he immediately just has to get focused and realized he's got to find a way to clear his name and possibly his family family's name really fast. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was interesting to just kind of see him be able to kind of think these things through in his head. And he's not, we're, we're not always seeing the things he's figured out, but you can tell not only is he just an action star good at, you know, hanging down in vaults and balancing himself and all that, he is quite an intelligent and just is able to see from different perspectives. And uh, I kind of like seeing that type of character that doesn't just have one skill set to hang their hat on. Uh, he's really got a lot, but he really seems to care for the people he's working with and uh in fact it shows because he doesn't know if claire is part of jim's plot or not and he's not willing to lump her into it until he can be absolutely certain so it also shows me that you know sometimes especially in the more recent bond films it's shown him become a little more cold-hearted 
Hunt seems to have some some pretty strong moral compass and caring for those that are around him. You, you know, now that you mentioned that, I just didn't take a particular liking to Claire's character very much. And it might have been a directorial decision and a casting decision to not want you to fall too in love with this character because of the fact that she ends up backstabbing in the end. I think it, we're supposed to be sort of on the fence about her because Ethan is on the fence about her for such a long time in the movie. That's a good point because I'll be honest with you. There were some... Um, I, I, she was not my recast, but there was, as I was sitting there thinking later, and I don't want to spoil things with my superlatives just yet, but, uh, I, I was sitting there thinking something's not right here. I don't know what, it, I, I don't know what I want from this part, but it's not giving it to me. And now that I'm slowing down thinking about it, that might've been an intentional decision. So. Well, and I, I read somewhere that there was originally a more sophisticated opening, uh, that was going to create kind of a love triangle between I don't think I want that Jim Claire exactly and that's why they didn't do it it takes it too far out of genre and so maybe it got difficult to write her character a little bit after that because good call I didn't kind of I did not need that uh, love triangle yeah I I think they even tested it on an audience and it didn't go well I mean she looks like she belongs to Tom Cruise more than uh, John Voight because John Voight appears to be old enough to be her father yes but um anyway uh I you know maybe my head I've been I've been working a lot in the office so my head uh my this movie is really technically about backstabbers and betrayal and you know, being betrayed. And when I watched this movie, somehow my, I really flashed onto the part of um, the impossible breaking into the Langley headquarters and in, 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 uh, the secure vault. And uh, Ethan just calmly builds a team and does it. It's not a big deal to him. And in a way, um, I, I sometimes am humbled that I, I work at a architecture firm uh, called A7 here in Pittsburgh. And um, uh, some of the projects that we work on, uh, international projects, uh, you know, I've forgotten to work on uh, the Antizar Tower, which will be the world's tallest residential high-rise in Dubai, and uh, working on one of the world's largest mall facilities that is literally the size of some cities' downtowns. It is just, it's humbling to think some of the things that we do, and it's a, kind of funny when you sit there and you hear these people around the office who are like, we're going to build a giant mall that's going to be, you know, nine football fields long and you're like what and you know we just and it's going to have an indoor ski slope and it's going to have these towers that stick through it and you're just like it seems like someone's telling you to break into langley and and sure enough just as tom cruise is sitting there with a straight face you know the people that i work with are like this is what we're going to do we're really going to do it and so for the last three years you know i've been I've been doing Mission Impossible, and uh, it's it's pretty wild. So when yeah. you break it down, it, you can accomplish the impossible. And then someday Tom Cruise will jump off of one of those buildings in Dubai. Ooh. Oh. I would be honored, Tom Cruise, if yeah. you would jump off of one of my buildings. I'd be like, see that? Yeah, I did that. Tom Cruise was on that building. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, so why don't we get into our awards? This is probably my favorite part of the show. Um, Meredith, why don't you kick us off with your MVP? I think the MVP in this one probably is Tom Cruise because he carries the movie and he makes it 
you know, dark, but not so dark that it alienates the audience. So I think, you know, he sets a good tone and everything else just sort of falls in around him. I, I, that's for me too. That's, that's, that's my call. It's, you know, considering he's the producer and the lead actor, his footprints are all over or fingerprints. I always say footprints on here. Um, <laughs> well, know, his he, foots and, footprints and fingerprints are everywhere. So he's like a monkey man. Put his, yeah. his feet on it. Um, John, uh, Tom Cruise. Cl- cl- clean sweep. Yeah. I, I, between doing his own stunts and coming up with some of the ideas, uh, like that whole fish tank thing, that was also his idea. Yeah, um, he he did the stunt too. Like uh, it could have knocked him over, as you mentioned, but uh, he he actually runs out of a giant tidal wave of water that you know. And they tried it with a stunt man, but it's uh, and and De Palma asked him to do it, and I think this movie really led him into a lot of his movies doing his his own stunts, and so he's really doing just about everything, including a little bit of directing. I, I don't know what that gum tastes like, but I would personally enjoy having a packet of the Wrigley's red and green explosive gum. I just uh, although I, I would say if I were a spy, screw a cyanide caplet. Gimme that. Like <laughs> let me just start chewing that up. As as guaranteed to just nope, nothing left. Like try this gum. It will blow your mind. Exactly. <laughs> Best supporting actor. Uh, John, take this one. Well, uh, this one for me, honestly, was kind of a tough one. But I kind of think I have to go with Vanessa Redgrave as Max. Uh, oh, I, I, thought I like she, that pick. I, I, I think that she, I mean, she's already an accomplished actress at this point, but... She's kind of playful, and, you know, we don't know she's a female for a while. And has a, in the car ride after Ethan has proved himself, they just had really good chemistry right there. Like, it, it really Man, worked out. that's a good out. pick. I like that better than my pick. I'm still going to read my pick from before, but uh, I like <laughs> That's a good pick. I might, I might like yours better. Uh, Meredith, what do you have for Best Supporting Actor? So I think, and I... Sorry, I'm forgetting the guy's name at the moment, but the guy who played Kittredge, I felt that his sort of villainous attitude was great because it just threw you off for it, most of the movie. He was my my second pick, actually. His voice is perfect for <laughs> the role he played. Uh, Henry Zerny was his name. Yeah, and yeah just... I, I feel bad for forgetting his name because he was so good. But it's like he has that kind of condescending but commanding voice mm-hmm. well uh i went another direction maybe I, maybe i picked this one too quickly because that's another good pick there but uh i went with kristen scott thomas i really liked her chemistry with tom cruise in the beginning i thought she looked elegant i thought um i kind of kept sitting there thinking i was like dang it the wrong female companion got blown up or uh, not or stabbed in this case I, I i wanted a whole movie of her and not so much uh claire's character so well, and she seemed the most capable. I, I, I considered her, too. She's a great actress and uh, has just had a really good personality for multiple parts of the scene in Prague. I was sad to see her go, so. Uh, yes, I was, too. Hidden Jim. Meredith. Um, well, I think that Ving Rhames is kind of a hidden gem just because mm-hmm. he's he's so different from everybody else in the movie and you 
you don't expect somebody like him to show up. No, that's uh, I like that pick. That's mm-hmm. a, I, he wasn't on my radar, at least going into this movie at that point in time. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, he's just so different in tone and personality to the other characters that it, you just don't expect him at all. John Hidden Jim. Um, I'm going to go a little bit deeper in someone we haven't talked about yet, but I'm going with Dale Dye, who played Frank Barnes, kind of the uh, Kittredge underman. And he is just in so many war movies. It's, he was actually a Marine. So it, I it totally miss this. Sense. Like, what does he do in the movie? I, 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 my, this was slipping my mind. He's the one that he's uh, he's helping Kittredge on the train. He's trying to pick the lock on the bathroom. He's giving the advice when they try to bust Max's uh, thing. And he's like, what do you suggest we do? Uh, he's been in Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, Platoon. Huh. But he was actually a captain in the Marine Corps. So he he's an outbreak. He's a great character actor for these kind of military roles. Got a good voice for it. But I, I don't know if you recall any of the scenes with him in it. You went deep into uh, the uh, gem mine for that one. Yeah, because I've seen him in so many movies, and Platoon is one of my all-time classics, and he plays the captain in it, and he he's just got that good another good voice for that type of role as a government agent. My hidden gem, and I might have cheated a little bit in this one, but I I thought the supporting uh, he, he probably fits under the supporting category, but he's uncredited and he's not in the movie for very long. I got to go, Emilio Estevez. I really liked him in this movie, and I was if if I have. Uh, a regret it's that his character is not around longer i really liked him and uh i thought he was killing it and i, I was just yeah. disappointed was. to see him go because you know when we first meet him he's he's concerned that uh claire's been under too long and you kind of see that he's uh got, got a genuine heart and everything but then you see how lighthearted he is too and uh at one point it's just like uh say saved your ass again he's like yeah my lonely ass like that's he just has a really good rapport, even when they're kind of mocking him when they can't get the uh, elevator pass fingerprint yeah. thing done. And uh, they're making little comments to him. And it's just like, I forget what he calls uh, Ethan, but he, he calls him some sort of uh, name for like a Texas farmer or something. It's like, hold your horses. So and so like it, it, it was a great. Hard to call it a gem. I understand what you're saying, but I think that that's the right pick for it. I just, I, yeah, I mean, I had to say, I had to say, great job to Emilio somehow. So uh, and his tiger blood. Um, yeah, I could have seen more of him in the movie. Yeah. So, uh, hidden gem. Oh, sorry. We, uh, recast. Let's. Uh, if you could or had to recast somebody in this movie, who would it be? And yeah, you're also allowed to add uh, who would you replace them with. Um, Meredith, do you want to take this one first? Um, I don't think that I would recast anyone because I think everyone is right. I have a tendency to not like Claire as a character that much, but I feel like the actress who played her was was the right person. Just because I don't like that character that much doesn't mean I would recast her or anything. Okay, so I'm going to have to think about it for just a second then. Because uh, it's it's a tough game. We'll we'll see if you can uh, if so. Clearly, this is a have to instead of a ha- I want to. But uh, think about it for just a second, and we, we may ask you again uh, who 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 you might recast. Uh, my personal pick for this is Jean Reno. 
you know what? I don't. Maybe I haven't seen the right movies, but this is an actor I find to be on the overrated side. I just, for some reason, maybe it's just his face. I just don't like this guy, and he's even in an unlikable role. But I, I don't like him that much for this movie. I, I feel distracted by him, and I don't feel like he brings much to the table. So, oh. um, I know, not really. A pop- yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe I just haven't gained an appreciation for him. But uh, he pulled me down in this one, so I would, I would want to replace him with uh, Sean Bean. Okay. Oh, yeah, I like that. Hey, but that might have taken Sean Bean out of Goldeneye. Oh no, no, that, yeah, that's a no yeah. deal then. I was gonna say, I think that was the same year, so that that's Ugh. okay. Well, it's the right time period and it's the right type of guy, but yeah. Um, okay, in a perfect world, these Pooh movies could have coexisted. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, what about you, John? Who's your recast? Well, I mean. I, I think this is a tough one to recast, but I, I think that Emmanuel Emmanuel Bear as Claire might have been the one. I gave close and, consideration to that. Um, and honestly, I'm trying to think of at the time. I kind of think that maybe a younger a, a Catherine Zeta Jones might have been a good. Ooh, man, I like that. I want yeah. that. That's a good. Yeah. That's a, that's a great. That's a great pick. These are these are fun recasts this time. Meredith, as the pendulum swings back, do you you, you want to try for a? If you had to recast somebody, or you are you sticking to your guns? It's perfect. I think I'm sticking to my guns. You know, I didn't like Claire, but I think we're not supposed to like Claire. So I realized that in the time it. that we recorded this. Uh, you know, because I, I was I'm with John because I was sitting there going like I don't like you and I I feel like I should and I don't but. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we're not supposed to. What is your favorite shot? Uh, Meredith. I, oh, I think that it's probably um, Ethan hanging from the ceiling when he's trying to keep himself balanced because it's just so tense and uh, it, it's it's dramatic. It's very simple, but you so don't want him to hit the floor. It's like you span a twister uh, game mm-hmm. and then it said, don't touch the floor. And yeah. you're like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I have to touch something. Uh, John, best shot. Well, as far as best shot, I, I, I got to go with on, the, on top of the train. Uh, I, I just imagine that was so difficult to film. It apparently took him six weeks just in that studio to get it done. And uh, I, I guess I just kind of appreciate, especially from what I said before, Tom Cruise locating the only machine in Europe to accomplish what he wanted and how hard that scene must have been to set up and then how good it looked, especially for that time. It was phenomenal, but it holds up. It really holds up. Uh, I'm really glad Meredith mentioned the uh, CIA uh, or uh, Langley uh, vault scene because I was neck and neck with this and I went in expecting that to be it because it's the one that I see referenced the most. It's the one I had my memory the most. But upon watching this again, I just really loved the scene where he blows up the helicopter and is blown back onto the train and the camera sees his face like collide with the windshield of the train itself and so that moment where he blows the helicopter up and makes a daring escape uh, I, that that that's in the climax of the movie and maybe my adrenaline was going but i was like i was like whoa come from behind victory i didn't see this happening i i, I actually i'm going to give it to the uh helicopter escape 
uh, blow up. That, uh, but definitely a nod to the breaking into Langley scene. And and I like how when the 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 rotor for the helicopter stops near his neck, I I don't know why I like that conductor so much, but. Yeah. When he sees it and passes out. He's like in disbelief, looks at it, takes a real good survey of the scene. He's like, and now I'm going to pass out. Yeah, I'm not sure who that is, but he definitely looks familiar. And I think maybe he's had to give that look in other movies. Yeah, he definitely channeled his inner Don Knotts there to (laughs) to be like, what? He's like, don't slow down. They'll hit us. Accelerate. Accelerate. He's looking. So best she uh, best scene. The best sheen is Charlie Sheen, or is it Martin Sheen? No, uh, sorry, best scene. <laughs> well, I I think I have to go with my best scene is honestly when they get out of the embassy in Prague. I I just I like. I mean, th- there is a big plot change, but it really it's the whole feel of what's happening it really makes me like immersed in this moment because when they get out there and you know Kristen scott thomas and tom cruise are seemingly doing their little romantic thing out there everything seems to have gone so well it changed the tone so quickly of like success to utter failure and that fog that we referenced before, I, I think it really helped reinforce that idea. And that, that old city, like the, well, who were really agents, but I was positive that that drunk Russian was going to go in the river when he's running down the cobblestones. But Meredith, what's your best scene? So for me, it was uh, when Ethan is alone in the hotel room after, you know, the death of his team in the beginning of the movie and he uh, sees Claire come in, but what he sees in his mind is uh, John Voight coming in dead. And I thought that the acting in that scene was great. And it was, you know, a little bit of horror in a spy movie, which I thought was interesting. Mm. When it really shows Tom Cruise's, he's feeling a lot of guilt Mm -hmm. because he did view him because he hadn't figured out he was a traitor at that point. And he's just feeling extremely guilty because he did call for Ethan to come to the bridge and like he didn't make it. And you can see that there's this very, hu- although he's very good at being the spy, there's a very human side to him as well. Uh, for this one, I'm going to kind of uh, mirror John's pick for best shot. My favorite long scene there was the chase on top of the train i i really enjoyed that and then it transitions well into another good moment with the helicopter so uh they've got my adrenaline on high and i'm i'm in so uh best quote john you want to take this one first this this one was tough but i i I don't know why but maybe it's just because it stuck with me since i was a kid but when uh emilio estevez is showing uh ethan the the stick of gum for some reason when he says hasta lasagna don't get any on you I, I i don't know why that stuck with me oh and my gosh you 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 took it yeah that, that was my that was my best quote really yes <laughs> i'm with you i don't know what what it was either i was just like i went back and looked at it and i was like hasta lasagna don't get any on you you have about five seconds i was like yeah i was like i love that 
I'm probably going to go around saying right. that now. <laughs> um, Meredith, is it a clean sweep for Asa Lasagna? <laughs> well, not quite. I, it's the same scene, but I was actually going to go with when Emilio Estevez says, just don't chew it, meaning the gum. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's just a good yeah. scene. You know what? They shouldn't have killed that guy. He was good. No, they should he not. He was. <laughs> um I also really like, and it's gum related. So this, the gum really was a big hit for me, as if you couldn't tell. But I also like the uh, scene uh, where he's like, "Red light, green light." Yeah, <laughs> sticks it on the windshield and then blows it up. I was like, "Yeah, that that's awesome. That's 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 that kind of action movie thing you say before you you do it." And it's like I I think back to the movie Hot Fuzz where he's like, "Did you say something cool?" Like, no, no, like what, like. Like, cool off. He's like, no, I didn't. He's like, oh, you should have. I, I also liked at the end when uh, they're talking about how it feels to not be disreputable anymore. And uh, when Ving Rhames says to him, it's like, well, if it's any consolation, I'll always view you that way. Yeah, like, that was good too. It, 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 it kind of opened up like, hey, these guys could be together in a movie in the future, which they were. Like, um, So... If you could change one thing about this movie, if you're De Palma, what are you changing in this movie? Well, I I, I kind of touched on it before. And at this point, I don't think I'd figure it out when I was 11, but I probably did at this point. But when we, we get to the train and we're kind of figuring out who's who, and it's trying to show... Phelps put together a gun, but we're not supposed to necessarily know who he is, especially a young kid. Like, he's wearing that dang same trench coat. And I'm just like, <laughs> that, wardrobe, that wardrobe choice is really sticking with you, huh? Yeah, I'm just like, he's worn that thing the whole movie. Like, <laughs> it, it's like, I know it's him now, for certain. Like, maybe you can buy it. John Voight's trench coat. It's like, and it goes with the car. It's like, this car was driven by John Voight. And I'm wearing John Voight's trench coat. It's like, <laughs> it's like huh. It says here, yeah, this was joined by John Voight, but it's spelled with an H. And it's <laughs> not even like black. You know, black used to be kind of be like, oh, well, lots of people wear that. It's like a light beige. Like, it's, it's maybe all it's the of, I think, is the color of that you, coat. You mean this isn't John Voight's coat? No. Get out! <laughs> um, Meredith. You're the director. What one thing are you changing? I would change the fact that we don't get to see all that much of the female characters. Um, Because in the beginning, we establish Hannah and we establish Kristen Scott Thomas's character. And, you know, they don't really get to do all that much in the course of the movie. And I would like to have kept either of those two a little bit longer in the movie. Yeah, we're just left with Claire, and Claire's just there. And it's something that gets sort of made up for, I think, in the next Mission Impossible movies. They have lots of good female characters, but I think that is something that I would have changed. Seriously, I can't even... Did Hannah actually say anything in the film? I think she did, but I don't remember what it was. So it was a little disappointing. Yeah, I guess really Vanessa Redgrave held up the mm-hmm. the female end of that. Yeah. Um, those are all good points. Uh, my, my my one thing, and I mentioned it, I, I alluded to it earlier, 
I think they need to establish some kind of better causality for them to go into Langley and steal the actual plans. I know he said he would deliver plans, but why he has to actually go so far to put a legit list in her hands instead of having Ving Rhames establish a very convincing lookalike, which is much safer in case something doesn't go that way. Um, I know I'm picking nits here and just getting into the... That really kind of was like, we're on quite a tangent and why are we doing this again? I kept sitting there wondering that on my second watch. So Yeah, or that they could have found a different way to expose John Voight's character. Yeah. Oh, that's another good one, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only rationale is that's the only thing that's going to draw them out that's important enough. Uh, because, I mean, if you think about it, especially at this time, 96, the Cold War hadn't been over that long got to be a lot of operatives that's really the only type of information that people are willing to stick their head out for because in fact if you think about it they aren't even going to let tom cruise meet max really they're going to they have that hood over his face and he basically kind of says he's not going to play ball until he meets her because she's kind of been coming off as a man is that the impression everyone else got like I think it was assumed Max. that she was a man. Yeah. Yes. Like, and so it's a surprise that it's just kind of this seemingly proper British lady. Um, and the only way she's going to pop her head out is for a list that people will pay all their money for to wipe out just about every CIA operative in Europe. If you think about it, they were still pretty hardcore about not knowing where he was going, putting the bag over his head, not showing her, uh, you know, her face. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's like, I'm not doing this unless you pull the bag off my head. And they're like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) They kind of take his word for it. But then she does call him out. It's like, it's easy for you to say that the, you know, the list that I have is bugged and can't look at it. And it's bogus. It's easy to say it's bogus. Because I can't look at it, and uh, but they try it, and that's how he ends up earning the trust to, and evade the Virginia farm boys, as he called them. But mm-hmm. so Meredith, before we go into giving our rating and recommendations for the movie, um, do you want to plug anything that you're working on? Um, actually, yeah, I have a new online store with, uh, some of my artwork. You can get art prints, t-shirts, coffee mugs, coasters, that sort of thing. Um, it's on society6.com slash Meredith Gray Robson. So that's it. Meredith's a very talented artist. Uh, I definitely recommend it. Uh, she's got some very cool stuff out there. She does some amazing work too. Uh, thanks. Uh, so and uh, we definitely appreciate her logo, which you guys get to look at every time you download our podcast. So now you have a voice to go with yeah. the image. So uh, as we yeah, move... Very in, much appreciated. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's time to rate the movie and see if it holds up. Meredith, what do you rate this movie on a scale of one to five? Or zero I would to five? give it a four and a half. Only because of, you know, we didn't get to see enough of uh, female characters, and I didn't like that Emilio Estevez got killed off. Those were the only two big issues for me. Yes. Uh, John? I also will be going with a four and a half. Um, 
you know, the only thing that kind of knocks it down, but it, it doesn't do it as much for me because I saw it as a kid, is it is a little bit dated when it comes to some of the technology stuff. And the the plot does get a little, I'm not going to say contrived necessarily, but just a little bit scatterbrained at certain points. I just but, think it struggles with transitions. Yes. There's a lot, a lot of transitions, little little difficult to follow, but the movie more than serves its purpose. As we kind of said, it is kind of a popcorn flick. Great action sequences, great gadgets, and interestingly enough, it didn't really require the use of guns that much. But very fun movie, very fun to figure out, and an effective cast, which is very important. You know, had you told, had you asked me, what do you think this movie was before I watched it again? Because it has really probably been since 96 since I watched this. Maybe 98. Uh, it's been that long. And so I, in my mind, I had kept knocking it down or just forgetting about it. And so I would have been like, hey, it's a three-star movie. It's, it's probably a little better than average. And then uh, I came in to this one and I was like, oh, this was, this was a good time. And so I, uh, I upped it to four. And I think I have the same criticisms you guys do in terms of the team dying early would normally be good. But the team's so good, I kind of want them to be around longer. And the transitions and some of the writing... I just feel like had they spent a little more time on the note board saying, okay, we want to do this. What causes this? Okay. And then we are doing this other thing. How do we get from this to this? And I just don't think that they spent enough time there on the, the famous little note board to lead a, a good cause and effect. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not imperative on an action movie and you're right. The action scenes are fun. Um, and, uh, there are a couple of, uh, casting moves that I thought, weren't perfect, but I mean, Cruz is clearly pulls, pulls this one through. So, uh, I, I'm just a little bit behind you guys at four. So had a great time with it though. Um, and I do think it ages pretty well, despite the old technology. I don't think the technology being a little bit out of sync or out of date is a problem. I mean, when you go back and watch a Bond movie now, I mean, Sometimes, you know, Bond's got a camera that would easily fit into your iPhone now, but it, they think it's clever and small or that, mm -hmm. he, or that he has something like a jetpack and it looks absurd uh, by today's standards. But I mean, it's still a jetpack. He's still flying in the air with it. I mean, it's still cool. It just may not look well, as sleek as today's standards. So it doesn't pull me out of the movie as much as some, maybe. Yeah, I think the 90s is an awkward place right now because it's, not old enough really to look retro or nostalgic in the way that, you know, a movie made in the seventies or the sixties would be. Mm. So I think in maybe like 20 years, people will think of that a little bit differently. That's just a good point. I, I that's, did, a, that's a good point. That yeah. is a good point. I don't think the nostalgia is there. I, I did think the soundtrack nostalgia was there because I think music was, has really changed. And I don't think that some of those uh, songs and the artists, um, continued to be in the public's eye and so going back to there really did take me back to like i was like oh yeah i forgot about this little cross section of music from this time period it's a little more instrumental than what i usually listen to and i really did enjoy going back to that so um it you know overall i think we can say i it's still it's still a good watch right oh yeah it's yeah, really very cool. much so yeah my only concern would be the younger generation upcoming they might find it a little a little slower for their taste, but I suppose that's just kind of the 
nature of movies. As a kid, I would just get lost in the characters and the story. And, you know, I might start off by the movie being like, I don't like how that guy's dressed or I don't like that guy's hair or something like that. But I mean, 10 minutes in the movie, you forget about it. It's almost like the mm-hmm. as a kid, I used to hate widescreen movies. I was like, get those black bars off the screen. <laughs> and again, you start watching it and you forget they're there in five minutes. If it's at all a good movie. I mean, if you're still complaining about the bars on the screen or the old clothes, you know, an hour and 10 minutes into the movie, then uh, either you don't have uh, a very good attention span or you've got a bad movie. And this is not a bad movie. So. Um, well, course, I think it only takes one view of what pan and scan does to those widescreen movies, how much of the frame it actually cuts out each scene. It's significant. The first time I saw that where they showed the box on a movie from its theatrical version to what it put on our VCRs, rest in peace VCRs, but uh, it cuts not quite a half, but probably at least a third of the screen off. No, it's a very valid point. And uh, so my point is, even as a kid, I wasn't distracted by such things. I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to watch King Kong. It's old. And then, uh, you know, it's King Kong's a really good movie. And um, so you just get into it. Maybe I was a different kind of kid. I grew up to help host a uh, co-host a a podcast about old movies. But, um, you know, from I'm positive I were if I were. I don't know, 10 years old today, I'd be, I'd be digging this movie and ready to be Ethan Hunt out in the backyard. Well, I Russell, think that's I, true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Russell, I would really encourage you when you get the chance to, to try to catch up. I didn't see the most recent one in theaters, but they, they got really good. Well, I, I am encouraged now and I probably will go into it. Uh, you know, again, they take so gosh darn long to make a James Bond movie these days. Uh, they really wait a long time between them. Uh, I've I've taken to the Kingsman and uh, maybe maybe a little bit of going and catching up on Mission Impossible will help tithe me over until uh, uh, you know James Bond will return. So. Yeah, and I think that you know Simon Pegg being in some of the newer Mission Impossible that might give you a little James Bond influence. He's a little bit MI5 style, so mm-hmm. he's pretty cool. What? And he he helps right. For that so mm-hmm. that's uh he's a great writer as well so we're nearing the end of our journey um before we hop in our deloreans and come back to present day john i'd like to throw a couple movie options at you and see what we're going to do next time are you up for that can you handle it i think i can handle it i can handle the truth <laughs> um okay well next time we're going to be looking at superhero sequels um I have three options that are all follow-ups to a successful superhero franchise. Option one, 1980s Superman 2. Superman agrees to sacrifice his powers and start a relationship with Lois Lane, unaware that the three uh, Kryptonian criminals that he inadvertently released are now conquering Earth. Option two, Batman Returns, 1994. When a corrupt businessman and grotesque penguin plot to take control of Gotham City, only Batman can stop them. Meanwhile, Catwoman has her own agenda, starring Michael Keaton, Christopher Walken, Danny DeVito, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, Spider-Man 2, or sorry, option 3, Spider-Man 2, 2004. Peter Parker is beset with troubles and his falling or failing in his personal life as he battles a brilliant scientist named Dr. Octavius. Otto Octavius. 
Oof, that was a tough one. Ottawa Octavia. <laughs> Ooh, that's that's a. Those are some good sequels, and uh, sequels aren't always that great. No, they're uh, not always as good. <laughs> I, I did think it was like, man, this implies that the second one's better. I was saying some of them, yeah. That I arguably Neil before Zod was one of my favorite lines as a kid. So, um, but you know, I, I think I'm gonna have to go a little bit back to my actual childhood. Uh, one I haven't, I haven't caught in a while. Uh, I'd kind of like to see Batman Returns. Again. Did Danny Elfman lure you in? I was about to say, and this might be a nice transition after Danny Elfman. We can com- compare some musical styles. That's the real Danny Elfman. That's, that, that's, that's the Tim Burton Danny Elfman. He's got puppet strings attached to him when he has music. <laughs> well, Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. We yeah, hope thank you, you very much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Um, and to all of our listeners out there, again, please give us a review on iTunes and Spotify. Wherever you listen to our podcast, give it a sub review. It helps spread us, uh, or spread us like butter. Um, and then, uh, you know, get, get back to us and give us a like on Facebook. We want to, we always want to engage with you guys. So until next time, be good to each other and watch more movies. John. Got to give it to Cruz this time. You complete me.